So I'm really honored and excited that you are um, joining me for this uh, Judaism and Wealth course. Um, so let me start with a, with a story. There was a, a wealthy um, businessman who was not very scrupulous, who was asked to speak to a business ethics class at, a, at the local university. And it was to speak on business ethics. So he says, imagine someone comes into my store and buys $5, uh, buys something for $5 and gives me a $10 bill. I give him $5 change. And then after he leaves the store, I discover that it wasn't a $10 bill, but it was a $100 bill. So here's the ethical question. Do I tell my partner or not? Okay. So. I get it. I get it. You get it. Good. It's, it's hard when you're not in the same room, the laughter and so on, but we're, we're good. So um, we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks about the ethics of money, business, wealth, success. And we're going to do this all from a, a Jewish perspective. And um, what's going to be really fascinating is that we're going to, our goal here is not to um, determine concretely what Jewish law says in every situation, but to help, to help uh, you navigate into the world of Jewish law um, and to understand how Jewish law, which is, a, which is a combination of technicalities and ethics and how that plays into looking at things that we may take for granted in the society within which we live. The reality is that all of us are engaged in some shape or form with money, business, work, and uh, it takes up a significant part of our day. And we too are susceptible to selective ethics. And we're going to try to understand, we're going to try to understand how it is that uh, Jewish, how, how Jewish thinking um, Take the approach that uh, that uh, is unique to Jewish law um, and the angle that it takes on on wealth, business, work, and commerce. We're going to be highlighting things such as insider trading, um, bankruptcy, uh, CEO compensation, and others. And even though the topics themselves might be narrow or the subject matter might be narrow, but you'll see that the topics around them are quite broad. And we're gonna see that jumping right in when we start talking about insider trading. So, um, and like I said, you know, one of the things that is a bonus here is that you're going to see how halacha works behind the scenes to analyze, um, analyze different circumstances and how Jewish law is ultimately determined. So let's, uh, let's stop talking, let's get down to business, okay? Let's talk about uh, insider trading tonight. But first, let's talk about how commerce works. So commerce is a structure, a healthy commerce, works where both sides of a transaction win. The buyer gets the merchandise for a reasonable price and the seller gets profit. But this is not a zero sum game. And I would love to have, um, why don't we just go around the room? If you don't want to read, that's perfectly fine. But Yogi Donna, would you read for us, please, text number one? Sure. Commerce is not a zero-sum game. 
In a good exchange, both sides benefit, and the fact that the buyer wins doesn't mean the seller loses. One fascinating expression of this approach is found in the laws of vows. The Mishnah states that if a person has vowed, perhaps in a fit of pique, not to obtain any benefit from another person, then he is forbidden both to sell to and also to buy from that person. The assumption is that in a normal transaction, both sides benefit. In the language of economists, there is both consumer surplus and producer surplus. Okay, so this is a, a very interesting, right out of the gate, we, we see um, a very powerful messaging that Jewish law tells us that if somebody were to make a vow to abstain from benefit from another individual, and by Jewish law, when you make a vow, you've got to keep your vow. So that would mean that you are not allowed to buy from that person, nor are you allowed to sell to that person. Why? Because both buying and selling both serve as a benefit to each individual, right? That's a healthy, that's in healthy commerce, both buyer and seller win. There's a benefit to each. But what happens when there's an imbalance? When, when, it's not any longer a winner and a winner where everybody's a winner, but there is a loser. Now, how does that imbalance take place? So typically this happens when there's an imbalance in information. For example, uh, the buyer knows something that the seller doesn't, or the seller knows something that the buyer doesn't about the product, about the, about the particular exchange. And one classic example of this would be insider trading. trading. So what is insider trading? in its most basic level, insider trading, is somebody has information, insider information, about a publicly traded company, um, and he or she uses that insider information to his, to his or her advantage. And in the United States, this is illegal as a result of the Securities and Act Exchange of, uh, Exchange Act of 1934, and it's considered fraud, okay? so. We Americans today in 2021 know that that's illegal and we are influenced by the fact that it's illegal and that some high profile people have sat in jail around this to think right out of the gate that it's, it's the most immoral, terrible thing that maybe a person can do. Okay, but I wanna challenge you. But first let's read a, a case study of a very uh, well-known story that took place with Martha Stewart. And let's just go down the list as it shows up on my computer. Computer, Vlad, please, if you're comfortable, please read case study one. Um, in December 2001, Martha Stewart's friend, Sam Rockstall, CEO of a biotech company called I Am Clone, learned that the FDA was going to reject the I Am Clone's application for approval of its cancer drug, Erbitux. Waxel attempted to call his stockbroker, Peter Bakanovich, at Merrill Lynch, but Bakanovich was on vacation. However, Waxel did speak with Doc uh, Fenuel, Bakanovich's assistant, and told him to sell Waxel's stock in I'm Clone. Following this exchange, Fenuel called Bakanovich and explained the situation. Bakanovich, who also served the steward's broker, told Fenuel to call Stewart and give her the story. Fanuel spoke with Stewart, telling her that he thought I'm Clone's share price was going to drop because Waxel was trying to cash out. Upon learning this, Stewart decided to sell 
3920 each uh, number of shares in I'm clone giving this order on uh, December 27, 2001. The sale occurred one day, one day prior to an announcement concerning Arbitex rejection. Okay, and, and as, it, as it turned out, the news of Arbitex rejection became public. The price of Imclone's shares dropped and she would have lost, had she not sold her share, she would have lost $46,000. Uh, and I believe she did time. I, it, it may have been, uh, may have been in home but she did time uh, and it was, very, it was a very high profile uh, case at the time. Okay, so now let's, let's, let's uh, engage in a brief discussion here. Um, we've got uh, five people besides myself on the call here tonight. And let's, let's talk about, do you, do you defend her actions? Do you find her actions faulty? And uh, back up your, your position. Was, did she act in an unethical way? Uh, did she act in an ethical way and, uh, and why? I would, Go ahead, Donna. I would say unethical because she played by different rules. Okay. Anybody want to defend her? Go ahead, Vlad. Well, not really defending, but the fact that she gained, someone else lost, because the price fluctuates based on someone willing to sell at that price. And she had a piece of information the other person didn't have which was not fair, is not considered fair or legal in, in the United States. Okay. Anybody else want to weigh in? Yeah, like the text make it sound, I know she went to jail, but make it sound like she was not presented as the, the drug is going to be rejected, but she was presented someone else, you know, cash out. So she didn't have all the information. I mean, she... She knows better, but that's probably why she went to jail. But um... okay, good. So we have we have a couple of couple of uh, uh, angles on this. But what's really interesting is that, again, I I, I pre preface this because I think we're all influenced by by realities that exist in society already for you know almost eighty five years and. Um, and we just assume that this is just an unethical thing. But actually, even from a secular law standpoint, it's not that simple. And re we're gonna read this, this next text that I think is going to, um, just, just to plant a seed that, it, this, that it's not that simple to, to see insider trading as just this terrible, terrible uh, behavior here. Um, Sandrine, would you like to read? I don't, we don't hear you. I don't know if you're muted. There you go. Insider trading is one of the most controversial aspects of securities regulation, even among the law and economics community. One set of scholars favored deregulation of insider trading allowing corporations to set their own insider trading policy by contract. Another set of law and economic scholars, in contrast, contends that the property right to inside information should be assigned to the corporation and not subject to contractual reassignment. Deregulatory arguments are typically premised on the claim that insider trading promotes marker 
market efficiency or that assigning the property right to inside information to managers is an efficient compensation scheme. Public choice analysis is also a staple of the deregulatory literature, arguing that the insider trading prohibition benefit market professionals and managers rather than investors. The argument in favor of regulating insider trading traditionally was based on fairness, which predicted predictably as a little traction in the law and economics community. Instead, the economic argument in favor of mandatory insider trading prohibition has typically rested on some variant of the economics of property writing information. Okay, so we, we just read a, 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 an article here, um, which can make your head spin a little bit if you're not a, a law professor. Um, mm. But what it what it clearly begins to dissect is that it's not that simple. Um, from an economic standpoint, one could argue that uh, insider trading hurts the business element of it, but it's unfair. But fairness is not ec economics is not built on fairness. Fairness is, is something that uh, maybe belongs to the world of, of uh, you know, religious values or, or moral values, but it's not necessarily what's good for economics. And then it becomes a whole analysis is who owns the information and to who, who, who benefits from the information. So I, I, we share this, art, this particular article from this law professor just more to kind of set the stage that it's not that black and white, even from a secular standpoint. But we're here to focus on the Jewish standpoint. So what I'm going to do, what, what I'd like to do tonight is I'm going to present, we're going to present a case study. Um, and then we're going to identify three Jewish principles, three Torah principles that we are going to use to together to analyze this case study. If we still have time after that, we're going to present um, an additional uh, one or two principles and an, an additional case studies. But let's start, let's start first with, the, um, with this case study here. Um, hang on a second here. Um, and Lisa, feel free to just not unmute yourself or unvideo yourself, but if you'd like to, I'd be honored to have you read. If not, we're gonna go to Mark. If Mark, you're good with reading. You there, Lisa, you wanna read? Yeah, Fantastic. sure. Um, case study two. Suppose that an honest man wants to sell a house because of certain defects of which he alone is aware. The building is supposed to be quite healthy, but is in fact insanitary, and he is aware that it is, or the place is badly built and is falling down, but nobody knows this except the owner. Suppose he does not disclose these facts to purchasers, and sells the house much more than he expected. Has he behaved unfairly or and dishonestly? Certainly he has, says Anne to Potter. At Athens, not to set a man right when he has lost his way is penalized by general execration. And, and it is not precisely the same thing to let a purchaser make a mistake and ruin himself with a very heavy loss that is even worse than not showing a man the way. 
since in this case, the purchaser is being deliberately misled. But he did not force you to buy, did he? Objects Diogenes. He did not even ask you to. He offered for sale something he did not want. You bought something that you wanted. For when the purchaser can exercise his own judgment, what fraud can there be on the part of the seller? It would surely be exceptionally stupid of a seller to enumerate the effects of what he is selling and the height of absurdity for the auctioneer to proclaim at the owner's request an insanitary house for sale. Okay, thank you very much. So this is a, this is a, 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 a debate uh, amongst Roman philosophers um, from 2000 years ago. You're, you're reading it right there. And uh, which in and of itself is fascinating, right? So this question is, uh, you might say, uh, almost as old as time. But here we have two very uh, educated, historical, fantastic figures that are debating whether it's so simple that there has to be full disclosure, right? Anybody want to have any comments on this before we jump into uh, to the Torah viewpoint? Is, is this this... Is this scenario, this case study, interesting to you? What is it? What is it bringing up for you? I'm curious what the purchaser, what responsibility does the purchaser have to clarify what 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 is legal and what is not legal, or what is doesn't he have an obligation to himself to know whether he is being taken for? Good. And what? I, I'll, I'll, isn't, I'll, isn't, I'll thicken your question. What happens if he says, I don't care if the house is faulty. I want to buy it anyway. Does the seller then have to say, oh, by the way, there's mold in the basement? Kind of has, we, we kind of have similar principles to Martha's insider trading in that we're saying, do we know the rules? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, this particular seller doesn't care about the, the condition of the house, but presumably most want to know the condition. So what a, there's, we don't know what the fair play, we don't know who has which rules similar to the insider trading. So when, when you're a buyer of stock, uh, there's an assumed risk, right? When any, whenever we buy a stock, there's an assumed risk um, that maybe there's stuff going on that I don't know about. But the question is, did the seller hide the defects and did the buyer ask if there are any um that also might be pertinent to good, good. and and one, one could say there's a difference between hiding the the defects and versus not disclosing the defects those aren't the same thing right okay good we have good we have good uh good conversation here so we're going to focus on three three principles um, from a Torah perspective. The first principle is called Genevas Das. Okay, Genevas Das is literally means to steal one's knowledge. In English, it's called deception, and it is a form of thievery to steal something um, when you are engaged in deception is considered an act of thievery. Um, Mark, would you read this passage from the Rambam, from Maimonides? 
and good evening. Uh, yes, good evening. Um, a person is forbidden to act in a smooth tongue and luring manner, saying one thing outwardly and thinking otherwise in one's heart. It is forbidden to deceive people. One should not press a colleague to share a meal when one knows the colleague will not accept the invitation, nor should one press presence upon a colleague knowing that the colleague will not accept them and the same applies to all matters of this sort. So this is very subtle, but yet very powerful, right? So you go to Shul on Shabbos, and, uh, and you know that there's one person who never comes, will never eat anywhere but at their own home, right? But you go over to them and say, hey, Yankel, would you come join me for, uh, for Friday night dinner? Now, why are you doing that? Because you want Yankel to think you're a sweetheart of a guy, and you want everybody else around to think, oh, what a wonderful guy, he's got open arms, right? That's deception, that's deceiving. That is an act of thievery. You're stealing, you're stealing people's perceptions in your act, right? Or conversely, as the Rambam presents here, trying to push a, a present on someone who you know will refuse to accept it, which is essentially the, you know, the other side of the same coin. So. And, and accordingly, we also have this passage from the Code of Jewish Law from Shulchan Aruch. Mark, read one more, please. It is forbidden to trick people in commerce or to deceive them. For example, if merchandise is blemished, one must inform the, cu the customer. Likewise, one should not sell a Gentile non-kosher meat as if it were kosher. Okay, so we know that Gentiles are not obligated to keep kosher, right? But because the Gentile is under the assumption that it's kosher meat, and therefore it must be of a better quality, so selling them non-kosher meat, and by the way, this is a real, a real problem, because you have um, the kosher butchers who will, when they slaughter multiple animals, sometimes the animals turn out to not be slaughtered properly, and they have to sell these animals to a non-Jewish butcher, um, and if they're selling them as if they're kosher, there's a there's a a deception that's taking place there. And this is this is a moral failing that is uh, the Torah prohibits. Okay. Um, so that's principle number one. And if you've got a pad of paper, you might want to write it write it down. It's called Genevas Das, the principle of deception. And we're going to apply these principles. Um, to our to our uh, uh, to to the insider trading and to the case of Cicero with the house, we're going to try to use these principles to analyze um, those those scenarios. Okay, now besides the moral failing that one is engaged in by uh, these acts of deception, um, there's there's another issue when one fails to disclose a flaw that is found in an item that you're selling. Selling. What is that? That is that the buyer is thinking that they're buying one thing, and in reality, they're buying something altogether different. This is called in Jewish law, mekach ta'us. Mekach ta'us. Mekach ta'us means a mistaken sale. So I'm buying something, thinking that it's one thing, and it turns out that it's something altogether different. And in Jewish law, such a sale, which is a mekachtos, a misinformed purchase, the sale is invalid. 
And let's see to what extent the sale is invalid. Again, quoting from the Rambam, when a person sells a colleague real estate or movable property, if there is a defect in the property of which the purchaser was not aware, it may be returned, even though several years have passed for the transaction was concluded under erroneous premises. The above applies, excuse me, the above applies provided the buyer did not use the purchase article after discovering the blemish. If, however, it was used after the blemish was discovered, the buyer forfeits the right to retract and may not return the article. Okay, so we, we see, well, let's talk about the second point in a moment. Um, but the first point is very powerful. And, and it, it, what's really fascinating is it's true even if the seller himself was not aware of the flaw, right? I sell you a house. According to Jewish law, I sell you a house, I sell you a piece of property, I sell you my, uh, my computer. No, I'm not a computer, it's not a good example. Uh, I sell you my piano. And, um, and I think it's really in perfect condition. You take it, you open it up, and you see that there is problems with it um, that I was unaware of. You are, have full legal right to come back to me and say, hey, by the way, um, there's this problem with it, and the sale is, is uh, the, the transaction is canceled. I have to return the money, you return the object, and that's true. I didn't even have any intention of deception here, but because you, the buyer, bought something under one impression, and it turns out that it wasn't what you expected, the sale is canceled. Now, if once you discover the blemish, you say, you know what, I'm going to use it anyway. You can't decide later on, oh, well, by the way, I didn't like it. That, that doesn't work. So once you accept that it's a blemished article and you're going to continue using it, then you own it. And this is, by the way, not a punishment for the seller. In other words, this is not a punishment because the seller acted immorally. This is an issue about the, this is, this is a question as to whether the transaction actually took place or not. Was it a completed transaction? And according to Jewish law, because it's a misinformed purchase, the transaction is, is, is invalid. It's just not, the transaction is not completed. Now, by the way, let's go one step further. So here's, here's the scenario where I'm selling you something that's flawed. What happens if you, if you buy something, either knowing that I am selling something that um, has more value than what I'm selling you, or it turns out, or, or in other words, you're, you're, you're aware that there's more value to the item than I'm selling to you. Let's say I sell you, I'm selling you a painting thinking it's a piece of junk, and it turns out that it's actually quite a valuable painting, and you know that, right? So you're deceiving me. Or even if you didn't know that, right? You see these shows on television about these, uh, you know, these um, uh, antique shows, right? where people are in possession of something 
that they are not even aware. So you go to a garage sale, you buy something, and you happen to know that it's a valuable painting, or you don't know that it's a valuable painting, but then find out afterward that it's a valuable painting. What does Jewish law say about this? So here we go. If a buyer purchases an item, this is from Pischei um, Cheshen, commentary on, the, on Jewish law. And he says like this, if a buyer purchases an item that has a hidden value of which the seller is unaware, like an antique, the buyer must inform the seller that this object is worth more than the average similar object on the market. One must do so due to the prohibition against deception. Furthermore, so that so that's the deception. That's the first art, the first principle, right? If you know and you're buying it, you're disadvantaging the other person. That's that's an act of deception. Furthermore, it would appear that if the buyer did not inform the seller, the item sold is different than the item the seller intended to sell to sell, and the sale can be nullified as a mistaken sell sale. So this would you know that would apply if you, the buyer, were not aware of its value, but found out afterwards, one would make the argument that the second principle of mistaken sale would apply there. Okay, so let's, let's take this and, and, and come full circle. Let's go back to, um, to Cicero's case I'll, I'll pull it back up here for a second. I have a question, Rabbi. Yeah, please. So on the case where that all of a sudden a buyer finds a defect that the seller wasn't aware of, so he's not, you're saying the seller's not penalized, but he'll have to take back something that's decreased in value from use, from where? So you're asking the question whether the buyer who got benefit from it would need to compensate the seller for the uh, the loss in value, like uh, like the uh, like the insurance company gives you a uh, they give you a couple of dollars for the decrease in value of your car, um, even if and they also, compensate you. And then also the buyer had use of the item for a while. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I, I don't know the answer to that, but that's a very interesting question. Makes a lot of sense what you're saying. And there, and there may be some very legitimate um, uh, basis in Jewish law where we would require, uh, you know, let's say, let's say in the case of, uh, you know, the piano, you know, he would have had to, uh, he got value out of it. Yeah, good point. Okay, but let's use, let's use these, these, uh, these two principles for a moment. And let's try to understand how, how would we rule in the case of Cicero and the defective house? Does anybody wanna, wanna weigh in? I mean, I can wax poetic, but I'd love to hear from you. I'll just know by experience that in uh, Illinois, it's a law. If you sell a house and you know there was let's say flood in the basement and you try to hide it, um, you're gonna be you know liable to that if if the new owner find out or get into flood or okay. but not in Georgia. Not in Georgia. No. <laughs> you know that from experience. Yes, oh, I great. mean, not, not, not a bad experience, but uh, uh, 
no, not a bad experience, but because I remember that from Illinois, I asked, you know, if it was the case here when we bought the house and they said no. Uh -huh. So here we here in the in I mean I don't know if it's it's a state law but you fill out a a disclosure right of of what's the status of the house and any any things you're aware of before you sell it. Um, so I, I guess the question is, um, it, it would seem that if the seller in our in our case study here is aware of the flaws, so does he have an obligation to? Uh, to share that, it would seem that both for both principles, both from a, a moral standing, not to be deceptive, and so that the buyer is aware of what he is buying, that he would disclose it. Yeah, right? I would say yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's add a third principle. And this third principle is going to uh, add another layer here that uh, let's see if it changes perhaps how we think about this. So here the Torah says, when you make a sale to your, to your fellow or make a purchase from the hand of your fellow, you shall not wrong one another. What is considered wronging? Wronging is, uh, the, the word in Hebrew is ona'a. Ona'a means that you do not, we're not allowed to sell um, a product that is, um, is unfairly priced. So how much is an unfairly priced object? So the Gemara, the Talmud, and Bava Metzia analyzes this and comes to the following conclusion, that less than a sixth, the sale is binding. More than a sixth, the sale is canceled. At a sixth, the sale is binding, and the ona, the, the amount that's above the market, has to be refunded. So let's let's talk about this scenario, okay? Um, anybody here been to the, well, I wouldn't say recently, but before recently, anybody here been to uh, to one of the Caribbean islands or on a, on a cruise of any sort, right? And uh, the, the, the cruise docks, and uh, you got a couple of hours on whatever the destination is there to go check things out. You come to the first the first shop that's selling T-shirts, uh, you know, big signs, Aruba or uh, the Cayman Islands or whatever else you're dreaming of these days, and um, uh, or the Alps. Okay, that the cruise doesn't go to the Alps, but we see Vlad's in the Alps, so you know we uh, we we might think of the Alps, right? You come to the airport, everything's overpriced in the airport, and um, you don't know what things are sold for on this particular place of the world. And the t-shirts are being sold for uh, $150. And the, uh, the tourists who know, don't know any better are picking up the product. So Jewish law is telling us that price gouging is prohibited. Now, what is considered price gouging? So we're saying it's a sixth, right? Um, but what is the framework around this six? So let's read one more passage here. Um, go ahead, Donna, please read for us. The law of Ona prohibits an individual from concluding a transaction at a price that is more favorable to himself than the competitive norm. The law of Ona validates the complainant's grievance that a better marketplace opportunity was available to him at the time he entered into the transaction. 
economists would call the ONA complaint an opportunity cost claim. The complainant does not lose his right to transact at the market norm unless we can be certain that he waived this right at the time he entered into the transaction. Okay, so what we have here is like this. When, when the Torah tells us, the Torah says, look, make profit. We're all about making a good living. Nobody has to uh, do kindness in opening up a business just to do kindness. You're allowed to make money. You're allowed to make profit. It's all good. As we like to say, it's good for the Jews, right? However, do a fair and honest profit. Something that's good for everybody. Don't prey on unsuspecting consumers because that's not good business. That's predatory business. And this is true both about the seller and also about the buyer. The buyer is not allowed to buy something that is priced below its real market value in the case where the seller is unaware of the real value. Now, what happens if both parties are aware of the fact that they're either overpaying or underpaying for a particular item? So they have waived their rights and the sale is valid. An example, a seller is uh, desperate for cash, right? And is willing to sell an expensive item to make a quick sale. And uh, that's completely legitimate as long as everybody's very clear. Or if you're uh, a tourist and you really, really want that t-shirt and you got to get make it back to the boat on time, you might be willing to pay for it. Okay, and here again, we're, we're, this is not about the issue of, of a misinformed purchase. This is an issue of fraud. Um, for example, if, if one is selling a $300 camera for $300 and the camera doesn't work, so this is both price fraud and it's a misinformed purchase. But if you're selling a $300 working camera for $500, that's price fraud, not a misinformed purchase. Because we know that it's a $300 camera that I'm buying for $500. There's no secret there. Selling a rare antique that has a hidden defect, that's a misinformed purchase, not price fraud. Why? Because there's no accepted market value for this antique. So it's important, important that we put things in context. So let's, let's do two learning activities together. Well, we have the answers here because I don't have the student workbook. I just have the teacher's workbook, but let's, let's just go through them and understand them. So we have an undisclosed defect in an item that has a set market value. The defect significantly lowers the item's value. Right? So this is, is there a mistaken sale? Yes. Is there price fraud? Yes. How about an undisclosed defect that doesn't lower an item's value? So is it a mistaken sale? Yes. Because there's, there's an impression of what I'm actually buying that's misrepresented, but I'm not overpaying because I'm paying exactly what the market value is. Everybody with me? This makes sense? Okay. 
Third case, an undisclosed defect in an item that has no set market value, like the, like the, the antique. So here it's applicable. The mistaken sale is applicable, but there's no price fraud because there is no price that one is frauding. It's, it's what a willing buyer and a willing seller are willing to agree to. How about an overpriced flawless item that has a set market value? So again, there's no mistaken sale because you know exactly what it is that you're buying for what price, but there's still price fraud, which you may or may not be willing to accept in the case of you do accept it. So all good. Charging, finally, charging an exorbitant sum for a flawless item that has no set market value, market price. So in this case, there's neither a mistake in sale because everybody's aware that they're overpaying and there's no price fraud because there is no market value. So now let us go back to Cicero's house again. So going back to Cicero's house, so let's understand whether besides the the deception, besides the blemished item, is there an additional problem of overselling a defected house at a, at a market value? I would say that we're talking about um, this middle case here, an undisclosed defect in an item that has no set mark. Well, actually that's not correct. Well, why don't I ask you? Tell me which of these would be Cicero's uh, Cicero's case. Seems like both. It's a mistaken purchase because a buyer does not know the house is defective, and it says that it sells for much more than what it's worth. Okay. So it seems like both laws are applicable. Now, what happens if he lowers the value of the house to being a the price of a defective house? That would be cool. That would be kosher. Would he still need to disclose the defect? Yes. Yes. Right. So if he if he didn't disclose the defect but lower the price then you'd have a mistake in sale, but you wouldn't have price fraud. And if he, if, he did, if he did disclose it and still was selling it at market value and everybody was in agreement, then everything would be kosher. Right? Rabbi, what determines the value of a house? There are many factors that determine the value of a house. So when we talk about, so it's a great question. And I think that the, that is the, the answer to that question is the determination as to which of these, uh, which, which principle needs to be applied. So if we're talking about, um, so if we, if we say the house is, the, the value of the house is determined based on what the, what a house in good condition, in other words, we don't know the house has a defect. So a, a, a 2,000 square foot home in, in Virginia Highland goes for $750,000. Uh, I wish that's what it went for. But anyway, um, you know, if, if a house uh, sells at $750,000, 2,000 square feet in Virginia Highland, 
Um, but it happens to be that the house has mold growing in it. Um, so the value of the house is not $750,000. The market value without the disclosure is 750. So, so therefore when one is selling something that has a market value, but because of a particular defect, that value is not there, then there's price fraud there. Whereas when there isn't a set value, like in the case of an antique, because there is no, there is no market for antiques for that particular antique. So then there is no price fraud, but there could still be a mistaken sale if there is a defect in the item. So Cicero's house, its value from a market standpoint without the defect is what it's being sold for, but because it has the defect, so not only is it a mistaken sale, but there's also price fraud. Again, whether it's intentional or not is not important right now, um, but there's price fraud because the house is not actually worth, it, it, it's way overpriced, more than a sixth, from, a, from the price that a house with a defect would, would cost. Make sense? Do these two concepts come from the Talmud? Yes. Well, so yeah, so we, 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 we referenced um, the Code of Jewish Law, we referenced Maimonides, um, and we referenced the Talmud Bava Metzia. But even Maimonides in the Code of Jewish Law, there are extrapolations from the Talmud. The Talmud addresses the principles of them. Um, and in, in the Maimonides, which is a codifier, and then of course the Code of Jewish Law, which is a codifier, we, we kind of come to the conclusions in real life and in, in, in application of what's discussed and debated in the Talmud. I just got a quick question. What if you're selling a house because of its uh, proximity to a synagogue walking, which you're selling it to a Gentile person? And then that does not, it's more expensive because it's close to a synagogue. But if you're selling it to a Gentile and that does not matter, does it affect the price of the house? It's a great question. Great questions people are asking here tonight. Um, so, so, I'd like you to hold that question for a minute because I I'm sensing that there might be a parallel to that question when it comes to insider trading. I, I'm sensing. If not, if it doesn't resurface in that context, then uh, then I'll I'll give you my my perspective on that. But let's let's jump into a, a, one more scenario, and then we're going to kind of wrap it up and and tie it into um, tie it into insider trading. Okay. So um, let's go to here. We have another, um, no, no, let's go here. The famine at Rhodes. Okay. Um, Terry, I see you joined us a little bit here. Are you up to reading something for us? Okay, let's go to um, Vlad. Will you read the case study for us? Um, that there is a food shortage and famine that rose, uh, and the price of corn is extremely high. An honest man has 
brought the Rhodians a large stock of corn from Alexandria. He's aware that the number of traders are on their way from Alexandria. He has set their ships making, their, uh, making for roads with substantial cargoes of grain. Ought he tell the Rhodians this? Or is he to say nothing and sell his stock to the best price he can get? I'm assuming he is an enlightened, honest person. I'm asking you to consider the deliberation and self-searching of this sort of man who would not keep the Rhodians in ignorance if he thought this would be dishonest, but who is not certain that dishonesty would be involved. In cases of this kind, that eminent and respected stoic uh, diagenesis of Babylonian habitually takes one side and his very clever pupil Antipater of Tarsus the other. Antipater says that the fact that the facts must be revealed and the purchaser must be as fully informed as the seller. According to Diogenes, one of the on the other hand, the seller must declare the defect of his wares as far as the law of the land requires, but otherwise provides he tells known truths, he's entitled as a seller of goods to sell them as profitably as he can. I have brought my cargo, I have offered it for sale, I can offer it as cheap as the other dealers, perhaps cheaper when I'm overstocked. Who am I cheating? Okay, so before we, before we jump to, uh, to uh, spontaneous conclusions here, let's, let's take the scenario, right? And let's, let's look at the principles we spoke about before. So is there deception here? Why do you say no, Donna? Because, you know, I mean, everyone, all the buyers could have a different, different criteria of what's important. I mean, there's also time value of money. They want to do one transaction quick and the, you know, the boat might be coming, but it, something could happen, it might not arrive. So at the moment, at the time of dealing, he's, no, he's not being deceptive in my mind. At the time of dealing, he is selling wheat. The wheat is good wheat. It's 100% wheat. It's fantastic, right? So, th so there's no deception there. Is there a misinformed purchase here? I don't think so. Right, they're buying wheat. They're expecting to buy good wheat. And... Um, and they're getting good wheat, okay? How about price fraud? No. Okay, why not? Because, you know, supply and demand. I mean, that is part of the economic system. I mean, there's not enough to go around. So okay, anybody, have wanna, anybody wanna counter that argument about price fraud? He knows that the price is going to go down. Okay. Once the ship arrives, he has so, an additional piece of information that the buyer doesn't. So it's inside information. Correct. So is it price fraud or not? But there's no guarantee that the boat actually, I mean, we're, we're making that assumption that it's guaranteed. 
that the boat will arrive. Okay. I mean, there's there's no reason to expect that the boat won't arrive. It's sitting there, you know, it's sitting, you know, just right out there at sea. It's uh, it's not like it's, you know, many miles away. There's there's really, unless you know, so to speak, an act of God came along, it's gonna it's gonna arrive. Question is, does the the fact that he knows that the the market is going to drop tomorrow, and you're gonna see, you're already sensing and smelling that we're gonna bring this back to our um, to our insider trading here, right? But the fact that he knows that the market's going to drop tomorrow and wheat's going to cost a lot less, does that require that he uh, disclose it or not? So you're you're a Gap employee, knowing that tomorrow uh, there's going to be a sale. Do you have to disclose to your customers, hey, by the way, if you come back tomorrow, you'll get this for fifty percent off? And that's not going to do good for commerce, and he'll probably lose his job as a Gap employee, right? Does Gap even exist anymore? Who knows? But anyway, um, <laughs> you know, so so uh, Jewish law actually addresses this specific question in in the in the code of Jewish law. Rabbi Yosef Cairo says, with regard to commerce, we do not say that perhaps it is worth so and so in another place, or that in the future it will be worth such and such. We only consider the current time and place. That's it. And it, it, it's not so much a function of because tomorrow may not happen. It's because today, this is what it's valued at. And if you're willing to buy it and I'm willing to sell it today, it's all good. There is a principle. Um, there are two more principles that I wanna just mention parenthetically. One is there's a mitzvah in the Torah to return lost objects. If you find an object that belongs to someone, um, you're walking down the street, you see someone's cell phone, you see someone's wallet, you have an obligation to return it to them. It's a mitzvah, it's a positive commandment in the Torah to return that object. And there's a negative commandment not to turn away from it. And the Talmud extends that to uh, giving counsel when you're aware of something that, can, that uh, would prevent someone else from losing money you have an obligation to return the lost object, the theoretical lost money, by sharing that information with them. Which would then indicate, perhaps, that in the case of the wheat, that you would have an obligation to disclose it, right? Because you're saving them money by not causing them to lose the money that they could possibly save if they bought the product tomorrow. However, there is another principle that it needs to be applied here. And that is that when, when the lost, when it, assisting someone else, so let's, let's just take a, a simple scenario. I'm walking down the street and um, I see your, we'll use a Talmud uh, expression. I see your, your, your uh, cow is running down the street. And um, if I don't go after your cow, you're going to lose your cow because it's going to be gone. It's going to run away. It's, it's, you're never going to get it back. The only problem is I'm standing uh, right in front of my, my, uh, my chicken coop and I'm in the middle of fixing the gate. And while I'm fixing the gate of my chicken coop, I am protecting the chickens from going out. If I chase after your cow, my chickens are all gonna run away and I'm gonna lose my chickens. It's probably not exactly the scenario the Talmud presents, but something akin to that. So 
the Talmud says that I don't have to save your item at my expense. So if I am a seller selling wheat and I am going to save you money, I'm going to save your lost object by disclosing that tomorrow the price is going to drop, I'm losing money. So on account of that principle, I would not be required to disclose. So let's see how Cicero concludes his dilemma. And then we're going to apply it to, um, we're going to apply it to the insider trading. So Cicero says like this, I believe then that the corn merchant ought not to have concealed the facts from the Rhodians and that the man who was selling the house should not have withheld its defects from the purchaser. Holding things back does not always amount to concealment, but it does when you want people for your own profit to be kept in the dark about something that you know and would be useful for them to know. Anyone can see that, that see the sort of concealment that this amounts to and the sort of person who practices it he is the reverse of open, straightforward, fair, and honest. He is a shifty, deep, artful, treacherous, mal malevolent, underhand, sly, habitual rogues. Surely one does not derive advantage from earning all of those names and many more besides. Okay, so that's how Cicero concludes. Um, like Antipater and Diogenes, he sees both cases as one and the same. And Jewish law, however, as we've described, would see major differences between the two, between the house and the wheat. Um, in the case of the house, there is deception, misinformed, deception, misinformed sale, and price gouging, price fraud. In the case of wheat, there is none. So now let's bring this back to Martha Stewart and insider trading. So let's, let's talk about insider trading. Martha Stewart sold shares. Was there deception? No, no deception. Why? But she was made aware of of the that of the uh, up impending decision. Well, the deception from we're talking about the people that are buying Martha Stewart's shares. Is there deception, so to speak, between Martha Stewart and the buyers of her shares? I would say so. Yes. Okay, anybody disagree with that? Why is that different than the wheat? Because, because she has, because it's, uh, why is it different than the wheat? Because the wheat is a guarantee, you know, the market is only, our current market only exists on notion that there's a, a level playing field. And so you said earlier, that we do buy stocks knowing that there's a risk of unknown information, but we would all be at risk of that same unknown information. But now one party has that un unknown information. So that does, I mean, it's not an immediate, it leads to price fraud, I guess. Okay, I, I, I would say that um, if, we're, if we're using the wheat analogy, uh, the wheat scenario as a lesson for us, that um, she sold real shares that today are worth that dollar amount, right? And so she did not, she not deceive anybody. They bought shares and she sold shares. They bought wheat and she sold wheat. The fact that tomorrow 
the price is going to change does not change the fact that right now she's selling wheat and they're buying wheat. She's selling shares and they're buying shares. Now, is there a misinformed purchase? I mean, I look at it differently that I know because I mean, she does, she has impacted the price going by her, per, by her sale, she has changed the market. But that's true when anybody sells a stock. Right. We're always, we're always influencing the market when we sell a stock, even if we don't have insider information. In, in the moment that she sold her shares, she sold shares that were worth whatever they were worth at that moment, and they were purchased by people who were willing to pay that because that's what they were getting. Now, uh, we're not done yet. Misinformed purchase, the buyers know what they're getting, right? For today. For today, yeah. Price fraud, the price that she received for the shares was reflective of today's market value. How about returning lost property? She, if she, according to what we said, returning lost property, when it comes at your expense, she doesn't have to do that. So if we, if we want to really strip this down from a Jewish standpoint, from a halachic standpoint, from a, these Talmudic analyses standpoint, at least using these principles, she did not do anything wrong. However, however, there are other factors. First, first let's take it from, from a secular standpoint which we haven't even addressed some of the possible ideas, which is there is private information here that is being misappropriated, right? That there is an act there that's, you're going against the interest of the shareholder. So it's not, it's not, it's not just the, a willing buyer and a willing seller. There are other people that are being affected as, by that. And like you said, Donna, the whole market as a whole um, and the, the trust that we put into, into a system is, is uh, negatively affected. So we're in a, in a sense negatively affecting not just the buyer and the seller, but many other people. And therefore, when it comes down to it, um, when, when and if halacha were to analyze whether this is right or wrong, other factors need to be taken into consideration. One of the, the critical principles here is there is a, there is a, uh, um, a principle in Jewish law it's a very, very important principle. And that is that, um, and if it, it, it's interesting because it factors into um, to many monetary civil matters uh, where, where it doesn't cross over into religious matters. And that is that dina de machusa dina, which means that the law of the kingdom, the law of the country is the law. We Jews have a halachic obligation to follow the law of the country that we are in. Uh, engaging in, in tax fraud, um, violating uh, other civil laws is not just a violation of US law, you are violating the instruction of Jewish law that says, follow the laws of your country. Now we don't have to follow the laws of our country when it violates religious law, so that when, uh, if, the, if the country says violate the Shabbos, uh, or you can only vote on Shabbos, or you have to pay your taxes on Shabbos, we don't have to, uh, then Jewish law supersedes that. But when it comes to matters of, of, of uh, civil law, monetary law, economics, we have to follow the instruction of the country. And that's why, because there's a, uh, an, a Securities Exchange Act, 
we have to follow that law regardless. What we, what we try to accomplish here tonight is to look at these things from a perspective of, um, of, uh, of, of the principles upon which the Talmud draws conclusions and how it navigates to that. So I wanna, I wanna go back to Lisa's question about the synagogue, the house near the synagogue. I would love to, love to take a minute to get everybody's, uh, let, let's use, let's apply the principles for a second here, okay? So the house is really, uh, the, because the house is located near a synagogue, so it has a market value that would, that is more than if the house was located a mile away. Now, when somebody comes along, a Jew is selling this house um, to a Gentile. Is there a deception? <clears throat> I would say not. Anybody, anybody think there's deception here? No, okay. Misinformed purchase, the buyer knows what they're getting. They're buying a house and they're getting a house. Nobody's, nobody's hiding anything. How about price fraud? Why not? But is he selling it higher or lower? Well, higher, the, I mean, the market house, price? Well, the, this is the question: is the mar is is the market price priced only for a Jew, or is the market price also priced for a Gentile? In other words, what is the house really worth? Is the house worth, you know, an extra hundred thousand dollars because it's near a synagogue, or is it only worth an extra hundred thousand dollars because it's near a synagogue if a Jew were to buy it? So if I'm selling it to a Gentile, am I am I frauding them? You would have to look at the mm -hmm. transactions. It might not be worth a hundred thousand extra dollars to the current purchaser, but if that purchaser wants to sell in the future, you know, again, it, it's not just a one-time sale. Um, it has to reflect the ongoing market position. Yeah, I don't think it's price fraud, just like. Uh... You know, the price is high of a neighborhood because of the school. If the people who buy, you know, have no kids or have no intention to have kids, anyway, they're going to pay that price, like in Virginia, Virginia Highland. Yeah, so um, I guess the question is, do, do, does the seller, let's just say for argument's sake, uh, you know, you have these companies, these relocation companies, right? And they always seem to have an abundance of money and they got to move somebody quickly. And they come and they say, "Hey, okay, this is a good house. Um, you know, we're willing to pay the market price on it." You know, and and you say, "By the way, it, do we have to? Does the seller need to disclose? By the way, I'm charging an extra hundred thousand dollars because this house is next to a synagogue. You need to be aware of that. Do they have no. to disclose that? You would say not. No, I would say that the buyer has to, you know, I mean." <laughs> Uh, as to to what do you say study his market like he but you he know the reason really, why it's high they're not really charging an extra hundred thousand that's no. what that market area commands that's what that house is worth yeah yeah he could sell is not going to lose the, the seller is not going to lose you know um money just because that person is not jewish i mean right Right. What do you want to say, Vlad? Well, there, there's no deception here. They're selling at market value. Whether that person sees value in paying that price or not 
is up to the buyer, right? There's no deception here or price gouging. You could also say the seller would lose money if he didn't command the market price. Right. Now, if he knew that the synagogue was closing down the next week, that would be a different story. Okay. So, um, so go ahead. That would be insider trading. <laughs> right, right. Or, or if you knew COVID was coming and nobody was going to go to the synagogue for the next couple of months. Anyway, um, so listen, folks, we've had a, a, a great, we, you know, we, from a halachic standpoint, we didn't come to a specific conclusion around, around uh, um, you know, insider trading. We got some interesting insights from, a, from, from using these different principles. Um, and you know your your eBaying will never be the same again because you're going to be <laughs> second guessing yourself over and over again. But um, this was a good start. We learned some interesting principles, and we're going to keep on doing this over the next couple of weeks. And uh, please, by all means, feel free to email if you have uh, questions or comments. And uh, look forward to uh, to doing it again next week. Can you tell us the rest of the topics for the upcoming weeks, please. Um, you think I'm that good, huh? Um, <laughs> We're going to be doing, let's see, we're going to be looking at um, bankruptcy and debt discharge. We are going to be looking at um, CEO compensation. And we are going to be looking at consumer ethics and obligations. Interesting. Good stuff. Barbara, I got one. I got one question. I just sure. keeps going over my mind. I might have the story wrong, but what about Joseph when he was buying for the seven years of famine? Did he price gouge or what was ethically, what was he doing? No, we don't. I, I don't, I don't believe we have any pr principle of price gouging there. He, people paid. Um, and then when he finished paying, they paid some more and they, they had a problem with income. Um, because they weren't, take care, have a good night. Um, they had a problem with income. And, um, but Yosef was a, he was a capitalist. It was a market opportunity. People, people needed what he had and nobody else had it. So he sold, he sold it. I, I don't see any price gouging there. Did he, did they, when they sold him originally before the famine, did they know that there was going to be a famine? We don't know that he that they sold it specifically to him. We know that Pharaoh, on, on Joseph's instructions, they collected, they filled up the storehouses. We don't know that they specifically um, sold it to him. But regardless, um, I, I think according to the text, we know that Yosef, um, everybody was aware of what was going on. It was it was okay. well known. Okay. I have a cute story about, I actually experienced, I was a real estate broker for a couple of years in Manhattan. Uh -huh. That's a very challenging market, you know? Yeah. And so I rep, I represented the seller. Actually, I represented both sides, which was unusual. Anyway, we came to the closing and the buyer's walking in and they're so excited. And then we see like, why didn't the seller take out their bed? Why the whole house is empty, but the bed's in the bedroom. Huh. And we realized it was a built-in. Oh wow. I know. So, you know, so that, you know, the the, the buyer has to spend money to, to tear it out. It might impact the 
you know, the structure. And I was upset. I, I didn't, no one thought, we, neither, neither myself nor the buyer thought of asking, is this a built-in? I felt that the seller should have disclosed. In yeah. It. Yes. Good stuff. Good. Yeah. Fantastic. Wonderful. Wonderful studying with all of you. Have a wonderful evening. Look forward to next week. Thank you. You're welcome. Have good a good night. Time. Good night.